Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys, <laughs> welcome back again for another episode of Inside Aesthetics. This is episode three of our Tox Talks, our new little uh, mini-series. Today, we welcome back Neve Corduff. Neve joined us for episode one of the Tox Talks yes. when we spoke about Xeomin. And we've also got our friend Stefania Roberts from down in Melbourne. Stefania is a global key opinion leader for Allegan. Um, do you guys want to introduce yourself a little bit formally for the people who maybe missed the first episode? Neve, we'll start with you. Tell us about your background and who you are and what you do. Okay. I'm a plastic surgeon based in Geelong, Victoria, so not far from Steph. She's up the road in Melbourne. And I've been in pra- private practice since 93. And, um, yeah, I've been doing toxins since way back then. When I was at the Royal Children's, was my first experience in toxins, actually, injecting babies with cerebral palsy before giving them surgery and trying to splint out their spastic limbs. So I've got a long interest in it. Yeah, starting with therapeutics and then going into aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And Steph, tell us all about your background. Yeah, not as exciting as me, but I've known me for a very long time. Um, I'm an aesthetic physician and I'm a phlebologist. And yes, I'm not that far down the road from me, although you do need a passport to get to Geelong from East Melbourne, <laughs> but that's another story. Uh, no, we... I go back 25 years. Uh, I do aesthetic medicine. I was lured into it. I got uh, draped into it, and I've been working with Greg Goodman for the last 25 years and um, loving every minute of it. I think I entered the arena at a good time. It Mm -hmm. was when everything was brand new. It was when nobody knew what Botox was, and they used to present with a something in their forehead going, what's this line here, and can you fix it? And then you'd spent 20 minutes talking about what Botox was back then. Yeah. Remember, Botox has been around for a long time. You know, yep. Xeomin, less time, this for a little bit longer. Um, so I do uh, facial injectables. I do. Um, I have used lasers before. Uh, so part of my practice is purely aesthetic, and I'm also a phlebologist, so I spend quite a bit of my time treating varicose veins uh, endovenously. So I'm putting lasers, radiofrequency fibers, and glue into veins so i I spend time at my practice and uh uh, at greg's at the dermatology institute of victoria well thank you both that was great thank you for the uh introductions and telling us a bit about yourself now before we get stuck into the main questions we might be have a bit of a disclaimer yes well you know (laughs) the reason we've invited you is because you are both global key opinion users and sorry i'll say that again i've got invisalign i can't speak (laughs) You are both global key opinion leaders and international speakers for different companies. So you give relevant information and, and, and amazing experience, and you've been both been doing it for at least 20 years. But at the same time, the disclaimer is that, you know, you don't represent the brands today. You're not talking about the products. It's not sponsored. You're just giving your own experience. So I thought it'd be important just to yeah. drop that in just before this podcast, if anyone thinks that we're trying to showcase any particular brand. We're not. No, we don't want to get sued. So the disclaimer is very important. <laughs> 
start with that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and but it's um, but it's a new, it's a controversial topic, isn't it? Tox resistance. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's, it's, talk, it's spoken about a lot. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence, a lot of dogma, a lot of Chinese whispers. So. Hopefully, we can uh, get to the bottom of it to, to some degree today. Yeah, I, I was actually on a Facebook forum today, which is um, popular in Australia, Cosmetic Nurse Forum, I think it's called. And someone even said, you know, what do I do in this circumstance? Yep. So I just said, listen out for our podcast next week. But yep. um, maybe we'll start with Steph. I mean, what do we even mean by the word resistance? I mean, is that an accepted term or does it mean something else? Good question. Good question. Well, firstly, it is good to be here, not affiliated with companies. Uh, and even I have worked together by, for the record, for Mertz. She lured me into the dark side years ago. <laughs> so I have played around with the Mertz products. I've played around with this board. I've played around with Botox. I've dabbled with everything. Um, uh, you know, it's, I think that's important to know. And last week I was um, hit by COVID. And Neve, I just took out all these papers. So I started reading. Um, on all this stuff because I had nothing better to do because I couldn't leave my house because I was in, <laughs> in four walls. And it was quite interesting because when I looked at the word resistance, resistance I think is what you, you're talking about, immunoresistance, uh, to the fact that all the toxins are purified proteins and therefore a protein could elicit an immune response. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do is because I'm surrounded by a whole heap of papers and my brain isn't as good as what Neves is, so I've got them all here <laughs> and I've got them all, all, all coloured in so that we've got something because I'm not that smart. I rely on people that actually give me the extra information so that I'm actually not spinning anything and yeah. stating scientific facts. So what I've done is I've gone back to some of the uh, to, to the papers, and one of the papers that I found was really useful is the one from Pirazzini, and of course it's got to be good because it's Italian. He's a scientist; he doesn't inject at all, uh, but he's done a lot of work on neurotoxins. And I'm actually going to read, and I'll put my glasses on because I won't be able to see otherwise. Straight from his paper, the actual definition of immunoresistance, and I think he summarized it very beautifully in his paragraph where he talks about botulinum neurotoxins and associated proteins present in commercial preparations may elicit antibody formation when injected into patients. Antibodies formed against the accessory proteins do not interfere with the biologic activity of the toxin, and they are therefore non-neutralizing antibodies whereas antibodies that are formed against a neurotoxin, primarily against the heavy chain, may prevent or not uh, the biologic activity. So we can develop uh, antibodies against the neurotoxin. And if we look at the therapeutic literature, and I'm glad that Neve's here because I've read through so much of the therapeutic literature and quite frankly, I find it quite confusing mm. because uh, when we're looking at the therapeutic literature, they talk about resistance or immunoresistance. Uh, the incidence seems to be the same across all three brands that we have available in Australia, which is quite low. And what is interesting is when you're looking at the therapeutic indications, and I know we're going to get back to this later on when we're starting to talk about high doses and, and frequency uh, of intervals uh, in terms of the, the interval between treatment. I think what the papers show is that even if they've found neutralizing antibodies, and this is in when they've done clinical trials, the biological activity might still be present. Neve, did you have any comments about that amazing intro from Steph? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, it was fantastic. And Steph, I've also got my bits of paper. Because <laughs> I forget nearly everything. So um, I think the, the word resistance makes it, is, is part of the whole con um, confusion because we can have, what we talk about resistance is when you inject somebody with botulinum toxin and you hope it's going to weaken the muscle. And when it doesn't weaken the muscle as you expect it, then mm -hmm. that patient is resistant to the treatment. Now it can be, may not work one because you're stuffed up basically <laughs> and you didn't inject it in exactly the right spot yeah. or you got the dose wrong or there's other stuff going on. All right. Or it can be due to the fact that the, it's just the patient is responding to it and seeing as it shouldn't be there and producing antibodies and stopping it working. So that and that's what we call immunoresistance, as Steph alluded to in the Italian paper. Yeah. So it, there are different terminologies, and we have to be a little bit clear there. Yeah. Yeah. So could I ask a really obvious? Maybe it's a stupid question, so forgive me. But when you say resistance, does that mean it's not going to work? Can you still be resistant? And it still take effect. So is there a difference? What I'm saying is there a difference yes. between being resistant and being a non-responder? So the basically. Um, the two between resistant and a non clinically resistant and a non responder are yeah. the same, just right. different words for the same thing. Um, you can, and actually, a lot of patients, it starts just insidiously, it just doesn't last as long, it's not as effective. And they, we call that partial resistance or partial non responder until eventually it can get to the stage where it's not always, but it can get to the stage where it just stops working altogether. And that's right. a complete non-response or um, a treatment failure. Right. right, okay. And what do we mean by secondary non-responder versus primary non-responder then? So, so a primary non-responder is the first time you give them tox, botulinum toxin A, and it doesn't work. Uh -huh. And you go, what the hell? Why is it not working? Yeah. Okay. And sure, it can be because you've stuffed up, you injected water, not, not toxin. I mean, that can be the obvious one. But it's can be because they have they are fully vaccinated against the toxin and there are it's very very rare there are some people who are vaccinated when they went into the army many many moons ago and they were vac vaccinated for against use as a bioweapon there are people that might have been exposed to botulinum toxin as a child and not be aware of it. Mm -hmm. And there is question about a cross-reactivity with tetanus toxin as well. So those would be primary non-responders. You give it and it just doesn't work. Nearly everybody, though, that we see is a secondary non-responder, i.e. you give them botulina toxin, it works, and then it sort of wears off and it, doesn't, it stops working as well down the track. That's a secondary non-responder. Would you agree, Steph? Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's good. I... It's an interesting concept, this primary non-responder, and it was interesting when I was reading through the literature, Neith, uh, about the armies that, uh, that that actually they actually got immunized against um, botulinum uh, neurotoxin. It was fascinating to read. I guess that that population potentially is not going to be in Australia, so a primary non-responder would be quite rare. A very secondary rare. non, very rare, and you know. The thing that really gets me, and this is why I'm so passionate about this, and I'm glad that we've got our punching gloves on these so that we can <laughs> get this all sorted out, is that, you know, you and I both train, and it's interesting that when I put out that whole question 
out to people and I've asked this question mm. to injectors. This is in Australia where, again, I, I'm just, and I'm sorry that I'm diverting, uh, Jake, That's because a- you've got two of us that are not going to keep you on track. And you've got <laughs> in Australia like 90%. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, David. That's okay. Um, but what, what plagues me is that in the last two years when I've asked the question in a poll, so they're not identifiable, how many of you in this audience have had a primary non-response where you've given the patient whichever toxin you've got in your room and there's been zero response? And to my, to my amazement, 50% of the people in the audience said they had a primary non-responder, 50%. Okay, so I'm thinking they're probably thinking it's a complete non-responder. So as opposed to what is truly meant by a primary non-responder, it's in the in the terminology. So complete failure when it doesn't work at all, I think that's what they're thinking of rather than thinking secondary means it's partial failure. And that's a lack of understanding of the terminology. Yeah, that I was agree. after the definition was actually given, Neve. So it was interesting because it wasn't once that I did this, and I think I'm a clear communicator. I could not be. I might not be, but I've had it happen two or three times yeah. where the response and the definition was given to a primary non-responder versus a secondary non-responder where the patient has had whichever toxin before and then down the track comes back and says it's not working as well. And again, in that group, Fifty percent said they didn't. They had fifty percent of them said they had secondary non-responders. I took it a little bit further, Neve, because um, I do think that it happened when the injectors in the audience had less than five years' experience, and I actually think that it's a lot botulinum neurotoxin. All of them. There's a skill to it, mm. and it's a lot more difficult than people actually make it out to be. And we've got to be a little bit more scientific about the way we actually evaluate what we're actually seeing. I agree. If, if, if I could ask maybe Neve first and then come back to Stefania, what, what were your quoted incidents of what we're calling uh, primary non-responders or, or resistance? primary non-responders, secondary non-responders. So primary non-responders is very, very rare. That's yes, that, that's what I want to know. I want to know the, the incidents of know. that. I don't know. It would be right. deadly squat. I know one person. Yeah. I know one person who's completely resistant because he was vaccinated in the okay. army. And same for you, Steph. It's like infinitesimally small. Infinitesimally small. And this is the other thing that I tend to do, Jake, is I ask people like, you know, Neve, Peter Callan, who's as blunt as blunt can be, you know, Greg Goodman, Stephen Liu, all these people that have been around for a long time and uh, we've not seen one. Uh, yeah. So I, I, it is diddly squat, as Neve would say it. And <laughs> then when I ask the injectors that have been injecting for a long time what their secondary non-response rate is that's extremely low as well mm-hmm. and this is across all toxins and do you have a figure uh, for that in all those papers surrounding you what, a quoted I figure i certainly do <laughs> and all the i want papers? is the number nothing else because <laughs> we've got more questions <laughs> uh, you got more questions for me well, you've why, got why, me out of why you look for that and I'm not sure yeah. which of you want to take this as a to answer. Uh, maybe Neve, while um, Stefania's looking through her papers, do we have any um, knowledge or evidence as to what well, genetic predispositions, any f- lifestyle habits, diet, anything like that that would make someone more susceptible to being resistant, whether they be a primary or a secondary? Do we have any data on that at all? We have no solid data, but we certainly have um, immunological 
thoughts that that right. might be the case. So, I mean, I can go into the whole thing of how antibodies form and yep. how it's made, if you want to explain it. <laughs> Briefly. Briefly. <laughs> Briefly or simply. And for yes. dummies, yeah, like me. Yeah. All right. So I use an analogy, all right, of how does a terrorist get into the country? Mm. All right. And how is it managed? If he comes in on his own as a family man, just goes through immigration, does his passport, and you're in, right? However, one day he comes in with a group of other terrorists and they happen to be known. Yeah. So when they come into passport control, they're picked up. The whole group gets picked up because of the other guys who are known. And they all get reported as maybe being a problem. Now, the other thing is they're foreign as well. So it has to go to ASIO. So ASIO then make an assessment on what immigration said these are a dangerous group and they say, yeah, we're going to have to watch them, notify the police and keep an eye on them and they're ready to go if they come back in again and cause trouble. So the known terrorist, because the other guy came in with them by association, he's actually known and he has been put on the ASIO watch list. So, the, so what happens in the body is you inject a toxin, and this is the same with any vaccination, you inject a toxin. The macrophages pick up what's injected. They're the dendritic cells or the Langerhans cells in the skin. They pick it up and mm -hmm. they look at it and they say, are you dangerous? Is this a high-risk situation? And that danger zone is depend on your genetic history. So what you've got, if your great-great-great-great-great-granddad got exposed to something in the past, with the food poisoning, whatever, you will have that on your M MHC complex and you'll recognise it as a problem. Mm. So there is that genetic component and that fires up that dendritic cell and that dendritic cell then takes up all the proteins, including the neurotoxin, and marches up to the lymph nodes and says, hey, look at this, we've got a problem, this is a dangerous situation. The lymph node says, well, if it's just dangerous but it's not foreign, you sort it out. But if it's dangerous and it's foreign, then we're going to have to tell our T cells, get them involved, and they'll talk to the B cells, and we're going to make antibodies because it's a foreign protein. And then you get foreign protein made against the stuff that you genetically recognize, but also the neurotoxin. We don't genetically recognize neurotoxin by itself, the 150 kilodalton molecule. So because probably when you're great, 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 granddad's day when you got it you died mm. so you never passed it on so that's why we don't genetically recognize that new core neurotoxin but we do recognize all the other bits and pieces all the other proteins that are with it such as the cell what the bacterial cell wall components because remember it's from a bacterium and any inactivated toxin we recognize that and that fires our dendritic cells there you go. I've never heard a terrorist organization used in this kind of analogy before. That that was very good. Yeah, but, no, it was good. Yeah. Um, uh, but we did we get to the part around um, the risk factor, like what are the genetic components that can cause it? Like what were the actual, you said you didn't have well, any. Like, I guess Neve yeah. just sort of said it. Yeah. So if, if great, great granddaddy right. Right. was exposed to toxin yeah. and then that comes down your lineage, then by of, definition. Of you, sexist. You, so, yeah. Okay. Right. You know, if there were things that you exposed and you got blood poisoning, you're yeah. probably going to have that genetic thing that that is a really dangerous signal. If I see bacterial cell wall proteins, I'm going to really fire up. 
So that's sort of a vague, but it would indicate, it implicate what we're seeing from the literature that there is a genetic predisposition because when you look like there's one um, patient in one of the studies who had, um, are we allowed to use trade names? Or yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah. Thank God, because they're so much shorter. So <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it had Botox 30 units each time. That was yeah. all. There are things in like children have a much, much, much higher development of immune resistance than, say, adults. And we think that, again, is because of that genetic predisposition. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But, but there's nothing that your like injectors listening to this podcast would be able to ask during the consultation process no. that potentially could. Okay, okay, great. No, this I don't think so. Based on studies. Okay. Wasn't Stefania Whitlock getting a, a figure for us? Yep, I have. Oh, Let yes. me give you this first. Tell us the okay, figure. I've got yes. it. <laughs> I've got the figure. Thank you, David. I, I've got the data from Peter Zini once again, and he basically says that the um, the neutralizing antibodies, the incident rates of development of neutralizing antibodies and clinical non-responsive with current botulinum neurotoxin formulations with uh, onobotulinum toxin, which is Botox, between 0 to 1.9%, abobotulinum toxin, disport, 0 to 3.6%, rimabotulinum uh, toxin, which is the B, strain is 10 to 18%, not here in Australia, and incobotulinum toxin or xeomin, 0 to 1.8%. So it's pretty much the same with Botox, xeomin, slightly tiny bit higher. Oh. Oh, Neve wants to counter that. So come on, Neve. Yeah. I love okay. that this is brilliant. On, this is like a boxing no, 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 match. One more, one more before right. you, you put your matching <laughs> things up. I need the a last Negroni. one is from Ekram <laughs> Rahman, who published this in 2021. Oh, yeah. And this is Immunogenicity to Botulinum Toxin Type A as Systematic Review with a meta-analysis across therapeutic indications where he looked at over 8,833 8, patients and quote unquote, patients with the highest incidence of neutralizing antibodies were the dystonias at 7.4%. And with spasticity, urological indications, they were high at 6.7, 6.2%. And the highest incidence of neutralizing antibodies in this meta analysis was found with uh, Dysport at 7.4%. And that with uh, Botox and Diamond was pretty much the same. Okay. That's quote unquote. Right. Now, let me just, let me just, because you're, you're quoting meta-analysis papers and the exclusion data and the exclusion criteria are very significant. So if you look at the paper by Dresler and he quite clearly, and they all agree with him, it takes at least two years to develop the resistance, or the, the immunoresistance, all right, after treatment. When you look at uh, Ekram's paper, so 12 out of those 43 papers were only 12 papers were two years and beyond, uh, beyond data. So you would only see it in those 12 papers out of all of them. Same with Nauman paper, who was looking at all the FDA submissions. Again, there was only 10 of those papers were out from two years. So you wouldn't expect to see it in those number of patients. The other thing is when you're looking at, and I think that's a bit disingenuous to say, you're looking at in the different different preparations because they didn't exclude if they'd had or could have had toxin before. 
So if somebody, I mean, if somebody at that time point, I know ECRA only looked at studies beyond, what was it, 2000, 2000, I think, or whatever it was. 2000, yeah. Try and exclude the original Botox, which was a bit protein heavy. Yep, so absolutely. So they tried to, he tried to exclude those, but what he didn't do was exclude patients who may have been switchers. So they'd had Botox in the past, but when then they came into that study, they'd been switched to somewhere along the line to, to Dysport or Xeomin or vice versa. They had. So to say there's, there's a lot of cross behavior that wasn't excluded. So you can't, and even though, yes, overall, the picture is looking very low, maybe one to 2%. Yes. But when you're looking at each individual drug, you can't make any conclusions from that data. Or you can say pooled, that's what it looks like. Pooled, Nauman had it even less, like less than 1%. So yeah. pooled data looks very, very low. But I think because the clinical indications, the dosing and the drugs are all very different, you've got, if you're going to make anything more than an overall picture, you've got to break it up and compare apples with apples. And that's, of course, where this whole data thing falls down. Because we don't have data in aesthetics. No. We have no, case we reports don't. and we yeah. have um, accumulation of case reports, but that's it. We don't have any good clinical studies prospectively whatsoever. And to um, be fair, I guess, you know, th that is a problem with complications and, and all of our clinics. Our patients hop around. They don't know what's in their face, what's in their body, what filler they had. They don't know when they had yeah. it. And I, I think this skews everything to do with aesthetics. It's not just resistance. But I, I agree with what you're saying, Neve. Um, yeah. But I guess it's the best evidence we yeah. can have. You know, meta-analysis is probably one of the best um, levels of evidence that we can have. So Of an overall picture, but not when you start to compare drug to drug, then it's very difficult because like those studies, I know looking at them, the studies that were on INCO that were in there, they certainly were not excluding prior exposure. Okay. So it, it's very, and you've got this two-year two year window as well. That well, we we've got to also we remember that, and, you know, and, I, and I'm going to go through the change in the amount of protein that was present in yeah. the old uh, Botox vial versus the new one. I think the other thing that we've got to take into account is when each of the neurotoxins hit the market, because if we look at it, the literature goes for at least 35 years with Botox. So this is what I got from my papers, Neve, correct me if I'm wrong. In a period of um, 35 years, over 4,000 papers uh, from Botox, mm. around about 1,300. This is in the therapeutic arena. Yeah. 1,300 with this sport, 330 with Xeomin. And aesthetic in that 35-year period, around about 546 with Botox, 162 with this sport, 77 with Xeomin. Because the other thing that I did is look at when each of these products were actually came on the market because, you know, you've got a lot, 35 years, Botox got FDA approval uh, in 1989. And the rest of Europe, you know, outside of the US, we've had it since 1990. And, you know, I've used it for 25 years. This sport's been around in the US since 2009, pretty much similar to Xeomin. Xeomin hit mm -hmm. the US in 2010. And this sport hit outside the US since 1990, and Xeomin's been outside the US since 2007. So another thing I do think that we've got to look at when we're looking at all this data, and there's definitely a paucity of data, and especially in the aesthetic arena, I think we're all going to agree on that. But looking at, you know, when we're looking at all these incidences, 
the published amount of data is going to be different across the three neurotoxins that we've got available in Australia. Just the point. Again, you have to look at just the papers that uh, we're looking at, the papers on immunogenicity and resistance. Most, nearly all those papers, the majority of it was on clinical applications, not so much on immunogenicity, which is, but it's an interesting, I, I mean, I have to agree, you know, the history is important and maybe that's where Mertz were very lucky because they were the last one, the big one to come in. So they could see because Botox, as you're going to explain in a minute, dropped their protein load down from 25 to 5 nanograms because of the resistance problem. Um, Dysport was the same. So Ipsum, there was 12.5 nanograms in the original one when it was still being made at Cordon Dale. And then when Ipsum took over, they dropped that down to four nanograms per vial. So because of the resistance problem. So, of course, the Mertz guys are looking at this and going, okay, we've learned the lesson. <laughs> we need to reduce it further. And that's can, what they did. Can I jump in as the host? Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to put you back in your corners for a few <laughs> minutes. Um, because I, I'm, I, I, this is great. I, I love it. But I'm mindful that the, I'm mindful we're, that we're the like listeners... We're like this over coffee. No, I know. <laughs> so yes. the listeners in their cars, I think we need to tighten up the relevance rather than just quoting papers and papers and papers. Is, mm-hmm. is, that, is that a fair yeah. comment? Okay. Okay, I mean, cool. obviously, if it's relevant, but let, let's try and keep it a bit tighter, if that's okay. Sure. So, Steph, I thought it might be useful just to, you know, talk about how Botox is actually manufactured, because then that will help listeners understand what we mean by the molecular size and accessory <coughs> proteins and and all of that stuff and then maybe Neve can reflect on you know the differences cool. with zeomin and then we can talk about the relevance of protein and so on is that is that fair yeah perfect yep. so let's and start I'll, with steph I'll, I'll keep it i'll keep it nice and simple thank you so <laughs> botox stri- <laughs> i might understand day, right? that <laughs> uh, well i think the botox structure when we have a look at it uh uh, on a on a botulinum toxin botox it is a purified type a uh botulinum toxin there are seven serotypes and the molecular mass is approximately 900 kilodaltons and it basically consists of a heavy chain and a light change 100 kilodalton heavy chain 50 kilodalton uh, light chain and what botox has is the neurotoxin associated proteins so this is what is going to be the big thing because Botox dresses up with the coat, whereas uh, Xeomin is stackers. It doesn't have its coat. It coats out naked. Um, and <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I just thought I threw that in. It's just that the listeners will get that. And of course, we've got several um, hemagglutin uh, HA proteins. So basically, Botox consists of the core neurotoxin, and then there are some uh, neurotoxin associated proteins that surround the structure. And how is it produced? It basically comes from Clostridium botulinum. It's type A. It's a whole strain. It's a bacteria. It's cultured. It's fermented. It's then harvested and isolated. And then it's got a number of 300 kilodalton, 900 kilodalton complexes. And then it goes through a purification process. And the end product that we get lyophilized in the 100-unit Botox vial is a 900 kilodalton uh, product. And it looks like a little a smidge on the bottle. You can almost not see it if you're not careful. Looks like you're being gypped. It yeah. looks like there's nothing on it. It's just like this white little stuck-on powder. Uh, yeah, perfect. And Neve, how, how does Xeomin differ? Well, it well where it starts from the same bacterium and the same core neurotoxin, the 150 kilodalton molecule that um, Stefani's mentioned, that's in Xeomin as well, but there's nothing else, so it's naked. And the way that the, 
the way they're made, I mean, this is all secret, so it's only what we can be allowed to be told. But Botox is made, is purified through using a series of solvents. So it's precipitation process. And that brings out, takes out proteins that they don't want. And there's various solvents, and one of them, which is salt. Whereas um, incobotulinum toxin goes through the same process, it goes through the precipitation, and then it goes through a further chromatography, which further, very specifically, takes out more proteins that we don't want. So, it, and that last process is very um, specific. The slight change differences along the whole way. And one of them is like whether it's freeze dried or whether it's vacuum dried, which is one of the difference between the two. Whether it makes a lot of difference, who knows? Okay. So, just to clarify, <laughs> the toxins are essentially the same neurotoxin complex, Identical. 150 yeah. kilodaltons. Botox and indeed Dysport is wrapped around by various accessory proteins, proteins. of different weights. Xeomin is naked and doesn't. Is that clear? Yeah, that yeah. is very clear. Awesome. David. Right. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, I mean, I'll direct it at Stefania. Like, so what actually happens when you inject it into the body? Like, what is the process process that's happening? And, you know, your, and what are your thoughts on um, the importance of the accessory proteins and what sort of impact they have on, on the efficacy of the treatment? Yep, awesome question, David. These proteins, are they important in terms of now? This is where Neve and I are going to start fighting because what is the role of the, these uh, accessory proteins? And if we actually look back into it, because it's interesting, when you go into the history, the importance of the neutralizing the, these uh, uh, accessory proteins is actually to stabilize the pure neurotoxin um, against the pH of when the neurotoxin was actually ingested so mm. the accessory proteins were protecting the core neurotoxin to actually get into the body so that it can cause some damage so the neutralizing antibodies would are just accessory proteins they do not have a role in the functionality of the core neurotoxin and the core neurotoxin the 150 kilodalton neurotoxin is the same whether it's Botox, Dysport, or Xeoman. So the, it's interesting because the question is, when you inject somebody with Botox or Dysport for that reason, because we've both got coats on versus Xeoman that starkers, how long do these uh, accessory proteins go away? And the data is difficult to actually access within the literature. I did find something that Pirardini he actually said that it, it with both Dysport and Botox, the neurotoxin complexes um, uh, release the naked neurotoxin, the 150 kilodalton, in less than a minute at physiological pH. But I've only found this with him, but I haven't been able to find it in the rest of the literature. Right. So that's, yeah. Okay. And I mean, so what does the proteins do to the body? I mean, we've already discussed that your body sort of reacts to it a bit like the terrorist analogy. And, you know, if the body says, hmm, this is foreign, then you will create antibodies. Is that correct, Neve? Let's come back to you. Yeah. So basically what Steph, I totally agree with it. Um, there is a study by, I know David's about to fall off sleep with boredom with listening to no, all this. No, not at all. Sorry, David. <laughs> Struggling. But, <laughs> see, looking at the clock a minute ago. No, there's no um, clock in here actually. <laughs> so the, um, there's a study by a guy from ISIL, another German, um, who showed that actually when you mix it in the vial, the, the, proteins all separate out in the when we put saline in as we do before we inject it mm. so actually it's all separated out before 
we stick it into the patient's muscle. The, the these complexing proteins, yes, they do, they are protected from the duodenum, but also there's a little bit more to it than that. So one of them, the, the complexing proteins, actually can attach to part of the gut just to help open up cells and squeeze in so that the toxin can actually get across the gut into the blood. Mm-hmm. Um, they they make things a little bit sticky. So they do have a bit of a role in food poisoning, but not so much. That, in fact, they don't have any role, as Steph said, in what we're doing, which is injecting it into a muscle. They're yeah. just extraneous. We don't need them. Okay. Fair enough. Now, I read a paper. Uh, what was it? Who was the author? It was Jost Blumel. And yep. basically, it said that Xeomin, you know, it claims to be pure or, or inverted yeah. commas pure, but there are a tiny bit of associated proteins with it. And it gave two quotes of 0.44 nanograms per mil and 0.6 nanograms per mil in two different studies. Now, that's much lower than Botox and Dysport, yeah. but but can you comment on that? Because you know, you, you've obviously gone into that more than I have. Yeah, there's no complexing proteins, so at all. Right. So all that that 0.44 nanograms um, is actually neurotoxin. It's the 150 kilodalton. It's all the 150 kilodalton molecule, and that weighs 0.44 nanograms. There vary. Unfortunately, the the assays vary. So there's the Bradford and the A, I'm just trying to remember, A280, I think it is, sounds like an aeroplane, and the Bradford assays for, for measuring the, the amount of protein varies. So you will have a little bit of variability both in Botox measurements and Dysport measurements and Zeeman measurements. And it's that little bit between 0.44 and 0.6 is neither here nor there really compared to 0.5 nanograms or 4.5 nanograms with the other two. It's it's basically how much of that protein that's in the vial, is it all the 150 kilodalton molecule or is there other bits and pieces with it that don't do anything? Steph, do you agree with that? Because protein's protein and neurotoxin is <laughs> oh, neurotoxin. You know, I, I keep on looking at this argument and look at it and my understanding from reading the literature is the important part of all of the neurotoxins is the core neurotoxin. Yes. Yeah. It's the 150. These, uh, these accessory proteins are irrelevant and even if you were to develop antibodies to the accessory proteins, from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, Neve, it doesn't impact the biological activity of the neurotoxin that you've got in hand. As far as I can see from the literature, from what I've actually read. You're correct to a certain extent. So the the complexing proteins do not have any real effect as far as we know. But there is a few questions as whether there may be. But anyway, on the clinical behavior. But the big thing is they activate the immune system. So every time you inject you get an activation if you've got those extra bits and pieces, the extra proteins that you don't need. So that, that's the issue. So if you're going to get an antibodies to the complexing proteins, doesn't matter, I agree. But antibodies to the neurotoxin is important. And you're going to get both. When you inject Botox, if, you're going, if your immune system is going to develop it, you're going to get antibodies to both. And it doesn't matter to who it's the antibodies complexing proteins, but it does matter to the neurotoxin. And it's like the adjuvant. So you're not going to fire up your 
dendritic cells. So you're not going to get any antibodies unless you've got those complexing proteins that we're genetically programmed to recognize. You see what I'm saying? So just to yeah, be clear on that, to, for people listening, because it systems. you know it does get a bit technical. So if you've got a Botox with complexing proteins versus yeah. one that doesn't, you're saying that the body will fire up more and, and produce antibodies with the protein coat, but not with the one that doesn't. That's exactly right. And there's been not one case report or one study where anybody who's had um, the naked toxin, the one without the coat, and Starker's one, there's been not one case of developing antibodies or developing resistance on immune resistance. So unless they've been, if these are patient, tox-naive patients, these Mm -hmm. are patients who've never been exposed to anything in the past. But I, I really believe there is a genetic predisposition in all this. I think some people are more prone to it than others. Mm. But you do need those complexing proteins to fire up your dendritic cells. Can I just say something, though, Neve? Because let's bring it back to clinical practice day to day, where we've got Botox, Disport, DMN, and everybody, all of us are going to have our preferred one. How often are we seeing this? And if you've got, if I get a non responder in my practice, the first person I blame is myself. And I know we're going to come back to this later on. And I look at it and I go, okay, and and we'll come back to this. I blame myself. Then I go, is it the patient's fault? And, of course, it always is, before I even (laughs) blame the product. So there are three things that always happen when you're a procedural person. And I don't know about you, but, you know, number one, in Australia, there's no way we can't even test for neutralizing antibodies. Have you sent anybody across to get neutralizing? You can do a clinical test. That's about the best you can do. because. Um, we don't have brilliant testing. It's a, even this testing that's done overseas. It's a two-step yep. to the ELISA to say, yes, there's antibodies to all the proteins. And then you have to do a a, a live animal, t- well, not a live animal anymore, but you have to do a sort of yes, no thing, whether it inactivates or not on mass okay. diaphragms or, or live mice or, you know, cell cultures. But clinically, I think... Um, I had, when I looked in my patients and I've been like, you've been around for a long time. I, there was over 25 patients that I could pick that could possibly have, uh, or have got resistance. Now that does not mean they have immune resistance, but they have a history of it not working as well. Mm. Out of them, I probably narrowed it down to, I think nine patients who I clinically suspect have actually got immune resistance. Now, those are actually entered into a research program. So we are actually, as part of a research trial, doing the bloods and everything else. But I've got nine over the years I've identified are highly likely. That is because I have watched them and seen their histories, same injector, same injection points, have a good record to watch as it just slowly wears off. I haven't got one complete resistance. They're all partial. Mm. But I've certainly seen them going down that slippery slope. Now, that, that's all I can tell you. That's my practice. But certainly, and yeah. these are patients that have come, some of them have come from elsewhere. So I've had to go and get their records from the previous clinic to look at it and see. Because you're right, most cases, most of them, and certainly mine, when they come back and it's not working as well, I go, oh, shit, I stuffed it up. Okay, let's tough it up. And it's my fault. 
Number one. Thanks for both recognising that because, you know, I think it's important as injectors that we do have a bit of introspection about our own practice rather than constantly blaming the product or or the patient. Most times it's me. Botox or any of these uh, neurotoxins being used in uh, cosmetic purposes is relatively new when you when you look at when it was being used for therapeutic applications. So mm-hmm. people with like muscular, you know, muscular neuron issues like spasticity or cerebral palsy. It was used in much, much higher doses, people with migraines and so on, being used in many high, you know, almost up to a thousand units potentially in, in some patients. And so yeah. my question is, is this potential, and, 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 and following on from that, um, it seems that this is these higher doses seem to create like a higher a higher uh, rate of potential non-resistance or, or, or non-responding. So, do you think there is a correlation between, um, I guess, number of units being administered, frequency, how long you've been doing it for? Is there any correlation there at all? Yes, um, there definitely is. Um, in all the clinical studies, that's what they've tried to do is pick out what are the risk factors, yeah. and the risk factors have been quite clearly identified being as each dose being high, there seems to be a threshold, which we don't know, but there seems to be a threshold of where you're going to start getting it. The accumulated dose over a number of years, and according to Dressler's paper, and the other seem to agree with it, it's from two years onwards you're going to start seeing it. Um, whether the, the interval of dosing, so Green was the one way back who said, no, that's why the, they said, Less than three months, you're increasing your risk. That's why all the guidelines and the PIs are all more than three months. Um, and if you're using booster dosing as well, so if you're doing top-ups at two to three weeks, you've got to be very careful. You're increasing your risk. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing is the actual formulation has been shown to be right. Yeah. Okay. So what I might ask from that is, and it's probably directed at all three of you. So obviously pharmaceutical companies um, exist to sell products. Um, yeah. You know, it, that's commercial reality of, of, all, of all businesses. How are they responding to this? If the evidence seems to be fairly clear that the more you have and the more frequently you have it, the more likely you are to develop resistance. What is, what is the response from the pharmaceutical companies when their objective is to sell as much product as possible? I'm going to pass that to Steph. Okay. I'm just the host today. I don't deal with difficult <laughs> questions. <laughs> just bring something back here because I think it's important. Neve, just for the record, you and I are both dinosaurs. How many years have you been injecting? Uh, since the 90s, like 90. Okay. Yeah. Don't make me calculate. How much is that? It's and like uh, long, long time. All right. Like so and years, yeah. in that period yeah. where you were doing therapeutic indications with the neurotoxins, and I'm assuming it would have been Botox back then because your friend Zeman yeah, wasn't was. there. <laughs> so you've got like a, quite a number of years of, you know, injecting. I've been injecting 25 years. I've probably seen three people that are secondary non-responders, that you, three, maybe five, but less less than 10. So I look at this and go, well, how many people have you injected along this period? Because we're focusing on nine people or 10. We're talking about how many vials of Botox, Xenon or Dysport that you've done and this very low, low number that you've narrowed down because you can count it on two two hands, the incidence of resistance is super low, super low. I agree. It is low. But, Steph, we're also now injecting a lot. I'm injecting a lot more than I used to. So back in the day, you did. You said you did develop. Yeah, yeah. And then we did a bit of forehead and then we did a bit of crows. Now, my... Probably half my patients will be lower face as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. And we're, you know, I'm using on average 50 units per patient where it used to be about 20 to 30. So well, you're, you're, you're conservative. I'm between 50 to 100 to 100. I slam yeah. every four months and I, I'm pretty heavy with my Botox dose. Well, yeah. Because I yeah. like to get them in. I do a good dose. I get them back at the two week review. I know we're going to go back through this. I don't want to see them for four or five months. Yeah. And I've actually looked at my retention rate and it's pretty high. Yeah. And if I look at people that I've been seeing for a long time, I haven't seen this non-response. Mm. So I just wanted to bring this in in terms of you know how many non-responders, secondary non-responders you've had, so do I, and over a long period of time of injecting. Mm. I understand that we, I don't know. This is the problem. We don't know. So because a lot of the patients I see are coming from other clinics saying, oh, you know, they're diddling me or they don't know what they're doing or whatever. And when you go into the history, you start to be a bit suspicious. Patients, this is our big problem in this industry. We don't know our complication rate. We don't know our and resistance being one of those. We don't know because patients move around. Yeah. If they're not happy, Correct. they go down the road. Well, that's, what I, was gonna, that's what I was going to say is that you don't know what your true non-respondent number no. is, Steph, because no. if patients aren't happy, maybe they're not no. coming back to you. But one um, thing you And then I would doing- also... Yeah, and then I was also going to say, I mean, 20 years ago, how many how many vascular occlusions were you getting? We didn't, and we probably there didn't recognise them back well, then, David. S- correct. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is now we we're, we're paying attention to these things a lot more now because they're starting to become known. Um, but in terms of, I mean, what are the pharma companies saying, which was, which was the original question, was what, what are they actually saying to this? If, if, we, if we're observing um, anecdotally that higher doses more frequently are going to lead to resistance, what is, when you talk to your you know, your BDM or your clinical specialist, what are they saying to this to this evidence, which seems to indicate that higher doses more frequently will potentially lead to these resistance well, issues? I still think we're at the beginning of this, to be, to be honest right. with you, David. And okay. I actually think that it's not only personally. Yep. I do not think that it's not only the pharma's uh, responsibility. I actually think that doctors need to actually state taking ownership yep. to collate a database because you know, at the end of the day, if I go back and report something to Allegan, they're going to give it to one of the key opinion leaders and then they're going to look at the file and have a look at it. Yep. I actually think it's a myth that doctors who are 10% of the injectors in Australia have not got either the plastic surgeons, the dermatologists, the aesthetic physicians, and even the nurse practitioners. We need to form a body where we're actually reporting this yep. so that we can actually evaluate it. And, you know, stop getting into the hands of the pharma company. I'm kind of over this. We need to take ownership. I'm happy to do both, but we cannot wash our hands of this because we need to work out what it is. When I look at a paper, I look and I go, who sponsored this paper? Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, I I put it away. So that's why I went down the toxicology pathway to look at stuff that's not actually being sponsored so I can get some proper data. So I think we... As a community, doctors and nurses in Australia need to tighten the realm and actually work out how do we actually collate this data and what do we do about it. And I I think there is still a lot of unknowns. I have to say, just before this podcast, (laughs) David and I were talking about a similar thing where just the role of the KOO in general, we're going a bit off topic here, but you know, we are always seen as, you know, paid and biased and so on. So do you think there's a role alongside what you just said about forming a KOL independent body where you're not Allegan, you're not Mertz, you're not, you know, Gaudel, whoever? Yeah. We're doctors. 
Yeah. Okay, we need to go back to the science and we've got to stop the pseudoscience. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of listening to BS and nothing substantiated. <laughs> we need to actually, hey, I took one of your words, Nee. Did you like that? <laughs> I've known Nee for a long time. And I actually think we've got to actually, you know, sit together and take off our coats of armour, whether it's Allegan, Dispo, whatever it is, because there are more toxins coming out. Let's just be scientific about this and let's work mm-hmm. out how we're actually going to look yeah. at it because at the end of the day, it's our patients that are going to be at the end of this and how are we going to best look after them so that we can advise as KOLs, which we all are here, mm. how to instruct the next generation so that we can do this right. Because I personally think the horse has bolted. In particular, in the last two years, every man and their dog are in Jake. And we're lucky in Australia that we don't have plumbers like the UK. You're from the UK, Jake. Yeah. Their plumbers are injecting toxin and fillers. In the in the, in the New Zealand, I don't think it's any any better. Uh, I'd hate to see that happening here, but um, the 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 margins, the boundaries are blurring. They're bleeding. It, they're not confined, and I think that's got consequences mm. for our patients. Yeah, yeah. You're what you're saying is really um, valid and honourable. But how practical is it? Having been involved with trying to do this with the breast implants, mm. um, it's a flipping nightmare because you have to get, you've got privacy laws, you've got um, funding, you've got a, a database that's got to meet a huge, huge amount of legislation. It does become, it's a major, major, major project. And at least there, you, you have surgeons. It's a limited number of people doing it. Here, it's the Wild West. And yeah. this is the problem. And like yeah. you were saying, you know, you inject differently to what I do. So you give a really solid dose, which from immunogenicity point is smart because if you can spread it out to five to six months, that's one of the ticks for the risk factor. Yeah. You're spacing your treatment out and they're not coming back soon. Whereas for me, I'm a low doser. I've, I like people to, to move and, you know, they'll be coming back at three to four months. Or maybe even on foreheads, in some patients with heavy brows, a very, very low dose, the third to half unit sprinkles, and they're coming back at six to eight weeks because dose is a, and longevity are hand in hand. And yep. that's one of the reasons I would use, but yep. even on that dose, immunogenicity is, you know, very, very low risk. So, but you and I are thinking along those lines in what we're doing. Yeah. yeah, and it's going to get even Already. more. Compl- it's going to get even more complicated with all the different toxins that are going to be coming out now. With different, you know, they oh, kick in. One of them yeah. kicks in in a few days. It's gone in a couple of weeks. One lasts six months. So it's going to complicate <laughs> things even more than, yes, it, <laughs> than is. it is now. Um, just back to the original question about ten minutes ago, we were talking about higher <laughs> dose and um, <laughs> risk of resistance. I just want to ask Neve, you know, because you were doing, you know, kids with spasticity, etc. You know, twenty, thirty years ago, did, did you see that in your practice? Did you? Did you have to back off or not? No, I didn't because I was a registrar at the children's and so I didn't see the long-term effects. I wasn't aware of it. Certainly didn't see them coming into the clinic. But there are studies in kids. um, There's one study I can recall that showed a third developed um, resistance with paediatrics with spasticity. Now, you think it's a massive dose per weight compared to what we would put in an adult. One, so that's one really big risk factor there. Um, and the question is whether there's a difference in the um, MHC complex and the genetic recognition of um, the 
adjuvants at, at that young age, which may be a little bit different and not as as active when you get older. Yeah. That's that's one of the questions as well. Okay. But certainly bigger doses, yeah, that's it. That's one of the well-known risks. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to give you one word answers each. What do we mean by high dose? Neve? Above 50. That was two words. Okay. Yeah. Steph, what yeah. would you? Uh, well, I don't know that that's one been word. defined. Sorry, two words. <laughs> uh, go, all right, uh, it's not defined. But I'm going to go 200 and above. No, okay. Um, I'm never playing a game. I'm never playing a game of Scrabble with you, Steph. I will lose every time. Why? Right. You take all the letters and all the words. I mean, none left. Clearly, don't play Scrabble. <laughs> um, but but I guess that's a good question. I mean, because if you're looking at countries like Australia, where you know you're not seeing people eating Botox probably in their calves and their trap muscles and things like that. Like countries like Asia where like calf slimming or masseter slimming is much yeah. more prevalent than what it is here. I mean, have we got any data from overseas that we can sort of compare to, to what we're seeing here? No, unfortunately, no, which surprises me because anecdotally there's a lot, you know, talking to my Asian um, colleagues, they say mm. they, they are seeing a lot of resistance. Yeah, right. Um, but no, it's there's no... No, nothing in the literature that I can see, no data on the aesthetic side of using those big doses. But, you know, your muscles don't differentiate between what, what the indication is. My body doesn't say, oh, well, is this for is this for this or is this is this for migraine or is this for to yeah. stop me frowning because I don't like the look of it? Yeah. It's the same. So it's do it comes back to dose and yeah. frequency and all the, an accumulated dose etc cetera, etc cetera, yep. is, is where your risk is for me i pick 50 because going back again in the literature which i know is boring you guys crazy no, okay. um is <laughs> there's a paper where they look at the different indications and 50 units on average for blepharospasm they're starting to see um resistance there so that's why I'm saying that's probably where you're starting to get into that risk group. Mm. And that's why I say that's my threshold for this is high yeah. dose, what I call high dose. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we go back to Steph's quotes about, you know, the the, the meta-analyses and, and incidents mm. of resistance or, or, or whatever we want to call it. It's still extremely low, despite the fact that we're saying in Asia, they're seeing more resistance. It, it doesn't seem to correlate. It doesn't make sense. Well, if it's 1%, which they're quoting overall. Well, up roughly. to 1%, yeah. Yeah, say it's 1%. That's one in 100. Now, Steph and I will definitely have hundreds of patients, if not more, going through our practices. Yeah. So for that one patient in 100 who gets resistance um, and gets a significant resistance and then ends up in a car accident needing tox as the number one treatment for pain, or if they have bladder dystonia where tox is going to work for the irritable bladder or whatever, if they're going to switch the therapeutics, then it has, I think, has implications. I've got one patient who's been with me forever, like from when I started having tox in her glabella. And recently, and she developed sort of a partial resistance. So then she developed multiple sclerosis and needs toxin for in her calf. And it was, it's become a big issue for her. The counter argument to that also, Neve, is that what I find anecdotally, because we're talking about anecdotally your okay. practice or my practice, and there's no data collection on this because there's no studies to uh, elucidate things, I tend to find that over the years, my doses have actually, when I do 100 or 50 to 70 to 100, I'm doing masseters, I'm doing, you know, yeah. I do a lot of lower face, so it's I'm not slamming them, I leave movement behind 
apart from the rubella, I think that needs to go. But, you know, we've all got our <laughs> different ways of doing things, but, you know, depends on the patient. If anything, anecdotally, in my hands, I tend to give hard kit for whatever they need. And some patients just come in for a glabella, get them back at the four-month mark, and I keep them out of the practice. If anything, I find that I decrease my dose. Mm. And again, this is anecdotal. Uh, over years, and I'm talking about 5, 10, 15 years, if not longer, uh, in terms of what I'm doing. But they also need other treatments, <laughs> you know, because the whole face is collapsing and, you know, this is where, you know, fillers and, you know, our light-based devices and the rest are needed as well. So we need to keep that into into account as well. And yeah. I think we've got to be cautious with the Asians when they say it's not working. Tell us a bit more about that and oh. where's the evidence. Mm. Okay. Now, because of time, I'm going to move on. I'm just going to go through two scenarios because this is really what the, the the listeners probably encounter, you know, in their own clinics. And this is what we, well, they struggle with. And I just want to give some practical tips of what they could or should do should they encounter these two scenarios. So you see a patient who's had previous toxin, you see them every, you know, three, four, five months, they've had no issues you know, for multiple rounds of Botox or toxin, let's call it toxin. And then you do their standard three areas one day and two weeks later, they're calling saying it didn't work. So I don't know, we'll start with Neve. What would you do in that scenario? And I think you've already alluded to it. You, the first thing you do is you look at your own practice and, and yeah. your records, but what would you do to just step by step? Okay. So I, the first thing I do is say, come back in. I mean, normally if I've got a new patient, they always come back at two weeks anyway, or if I change what I'm doing, they come back at two weeks. Mm -hmm. So I say, come back in, we'll have a look at it. And I say, so I look at their photographs before and look at their photographs now. It rests and frowning because the photographs are really good because just occasionally the patient's expectations are more than what you can give. Yep. But if it's not working, then they just say it's not working, you agree with them, then I usually think it's me, number one. The chances are it's me. I haven't done it right, so I retreat them. Okay, and you do the same dose as before, or do you yeah. go up a little bit? No, if it needs, if it need, if it's not working at all, if there's no change between the pre-photographs and then, then it hasn't worked. I mean, that hasn't happened to me, to be honest. Usually it's just not working quite as well. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. then you make a judgment call on whether you need to give a lower dose, a bit more, but certainly I will retreat them. Yeah. And then 99% of the time they come back and it's perfect. And they're and as happy as Harry. Any, so. any differences on your approach? Same. The only thing that I would add to what Neve said is if that happened, I'd always blame myself first. When I get them back, uh, I would actually videotape them during animation mm. and I then get them back two weeks after that and I insist they come back and then do comparisons not only of the static photos, you know, at rest and during contraction, but also relook at mm. the video and really analyse what we've got so that we're both on the same page. But because patient expectation, is it is it actually the movement or are they looking at other age-related changes that they're getting confused with? So video is the only thing I'd add to that. Yeah, yeah which is good because sometimes they recruit. Sometimes yes. you get patients who are recruiting yeah. other muscles to get the movement. Yeah. Agreed. I'm going to ask David a question. Yes. What, what you've owned businesses yeah. where this happens every five minutes. What what do you do as a business owner? Well, similar to what um, Steph and Neve were saying, which is to assess each its its case on its on its merits. I mean, I think the importance of clinical photography um, is something that sometimes is is not given as much, um, I guess, attention as, as as it should in terms of 
you know, taking videos, looking to make sure what the person started with. Because often, you know, what you see in front of you clinically is sometimes can be... <sighs> I'm just trying to think on how to word this in, in the way that makes sense to everybody. Um, checking their before photos, looking at their history, um, retreating them. Sometimes you'll get the pharmaceutical companies in to, to come in and get one of the BDMs to come in or one of the clinical trainers to come in and be there when you reassess. Or my, often the time that it's happened, it's been new injectors, people mm. that are new. So it's something that I've seen very rarely with the experienced injectors and that probably correlates or, or corresponds to what you guys are saying, which is that a lot of the time it could be injector error and this probably tends to plague new injectors more more so than experienced ones. Yeah, I mean, to, just to chip in, I don't know yeah. if error is, is a fair term, but certainly new injectors are a little bit more cautious with their dosing. And so, you know, when you do reflect on what is the minimum therapeutic dose to likely cause an effect, yeah. often with a new injector, they'll be below that. Yeah. So that's something that or, could be... Or the opposite. I tend to find new injectors either underdose or overdose. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'll just... <laughs> well, for example, you know, someone just knock out someone's forehead, yeah. like entirely and just drop someone's brows. They're not looking. They don't have the experience to be able to look at people's forehead. And that's the thing as well, looking at foreheads in particular, looking at the size of them, the mm. age, all those sorts of things. So... And yeah. I, I guess a rediscussion about um, expectations <coughs> like static lines versus Ooh. dynamic lines and... Yeah, you know, it's. I've noted it uh, particularly in Australia, having moved here, that the people who are quite sun damaged, they've got very thin collagen deplete, you know, foreheads. Even just a wrinkle of, uh, sorry, a flicker of movement creates a lot of, you know, fine wrinkles, even if they're not moving too much. So, just mm. to talk about skin quality as well is also yeah. quite relevant, I think. So, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to ask you guys, how do you deal with this? From I guess wouldn't call it a patient or customer service perspective, but I guess it kind of is like, how do you, when you feel like maybe you have made an error, how do you explain this to the patient in a way that doesn't make them lose confidence in you as an injector? You're not past, you try not to make yourself look silly, but at the same time, giving them accurate information and, and being the first, put your hand up to say, look, you know, we can do better. I think it's important. I actually think that I actually want to hear when my patient's not happy. I want to hear about the happy ones. <laughs> when they're not happy, I want them back into the clinic. And I go back from scratch, relook at the whole thing. Like Neve, I'm fortunate that it really doesn't happen uh, because, you know, uh, years of experience come in to work out what and, you know, a guesstimate of the dose that would be appropriate. But, you know, we're all human and we can stuff it up. And I always get my first-time patients back two weeks later uh, to reassess them to make sure they're happy and that I'm happy with it as well. But if they're not happy, I go back through and and go back through the history, look at my notes, look at them, look at the photography, look at the video if it's been done, and then own it. Uh, you got to own it. It's like when I get a um, a DLI, which I get on a regular basis, and I turn around and go, "That was me. I did that. I did that. That was me. It's not you. <laughs> it was yeah. how I did your Botox." And you've got to own what happens. And then I usually fix the problem. And if um, I I then think that I've given them a good dose, which I really do this, then uh, hopefully that does a trick and then they they stay on board as a regular patient. So, so I just take ownership. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like trying to break up with someone without making them feel like it's it's, it's me, it's not you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm very good at breaking up. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm like Steph, apart from it breaking up. Um, so <laughs> when I see the first time I see a patient, I say, and especially patients who've been elsewhere, I think that's where you can really come unstuck. And I say, look, this is my best guess. I don't know what you've had before. I don't know the dosing that works for you. The patient can't tell you what toxins they've had. That reminds what the dose is. So I just say, this is my best guess. 
I probably won't get it right first time. You'll have to come back. I'll probably have to fiddle with it, adjust it at no charge. And I say, we don't charge at all while we're trying to work out the right dose for your face. And that gets them right on side to start with. And then I don't have an issue. But yeah, I'm good at picking the DLI as well. Amazingly good at picking the DLI. So yeah. <laughs> it's a talent I have. So, you know, and I'll just say, ah, yeah, that's my fault. Stuck it in the wrong place. Sorry about that. When you bit off off yeah. track. See, for and, new injectors listening to this, I, I think you guys are being quite generous. I mean, I say to patients, you know, a bit similar to what you just said, you know, this is a medical procedure, you know, 95% of the time we'll get this right, but that, that you might need a bit of tinkering in, in a couple of weeks. But if you do need more just because your muscles are stronger and we've underdosed, I don't see why that should be on the injector personally. So, Well, I do. Ch- I, we don't charge for that. We And this is where I suppose... You go to Geelong, everyone. Don't come to my clinic. Yeah. <laughs> I charge. I do charge for the... The top up, but obviously from then on, yeah, they do pay for what they need. But initially, yeah. because it's never going to be a massive dose. Okay, so yeah. it's just your first primary review, yeah. and then from then on, use that dose. Right. Yeah, and, and there's no going back to resistance. That's what this is all about. There's no issue of topping up, even if it's a couple of units at that point. Uh, there is obviously, according to the the, the literature. In from therapeutics, but I think if you're just doing one or two units, I think the risk is tiny. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I think that the probably the, the risk is, and this is something we are getting, is patients who are price sensitive mm-hmm. say, Yeah, okay, I'll have my glabella done this week. Yeah. <laughs> then I'll have my lower face in a few weeks' time yeah. when I get my next pay. And then another few weeks, I'm going to have my, my gross, whatever. And they try and space it out. And that's probably where we're going to see the risk. That's yeah. actually a good point. Yeah. But that's where I think um, using a – got to try and lower all the yeah. risk factors down. So yeah. that's the one that where the formulation can make a difference, yeah. maybe. Can I tell you, Neve, that's the only time that I actually pull out this immunoresistance with my patients when they go in and I go, just do my crossfeeds today, and then they come back and, that, and I go, no. Yeah. This is how we're doing your Botox. Yeah. I'm doing your full Botox today. I like you, but I do not want to see you for four months. Ciao, ciao, hasta la vista. And then they come back. Yeah. So I reel them back in in the minute they start doing that. If they do that once to me, I'll look at the notes and I go, "Uh, excuse me, you've come in and then you've come in. This isn't going to work. And that's when I pull out the card about the immunoresistance, not that I believe in it at that point when I'm using low, low doses, but it reels them back in so that they actually listen to me. You got me? Yeah, they're I do the Italian job. But yeah. I do. You see, that's where by using, I would be, if I was using Botox, I, like you, would say, this is it. See you again in another four months and not before or three months. Yeah. But with Xeomen, there is, um, from the therapeutic literature, it, even when it's done six weeks apart, there's no resistance. Yeah. Being shown in therapeutics. So even early on the days, PI. Early days. If, no, even on the PI, following clinical trials, you can readmit, you can retreat in therapeutics at six weeks with um, ZMN. Because so I think for those patients, it's a nice indication to be able to use ZMN in those. But for the rest of them, if I was using Botox, I would be exactly the same as you spread it out. What about, well, I know again from my own experience, the people that traditionally have issues about wearing off quickly or claiming that they're not getting the responses, people who excessively exercise. 
So your people that are like, you know, running marathons, they're training five, six times a week. Have you found similar issues from, from, from that sort of cohort of, of patients in your practices? I mean, do you think it has any sort of correlation at all? I personally haven't. I think <laughs> patients who go out and exercise and get hot and bothered straight after they've left, after <laughs> their injection, they may spread it a little bit more with increased blood flow. Who yep. knows? But I haven't seen it, to be honest. It's I'm not convinced. Yeah. No. And I haven't either. I do think that the one thing that I always educate the patients about is say, well, list, if your if your Botox time is a four-month period, you're going to get, it's going to take three, four days for the Botox to kick in. And I always add extra time, full effect at two weeks. And then if your duration is going to be, let's say, four months, after six to eight weeks, you're going to be solid, no movement. And then you're going to start getting the neuronal sprouts and you're going to start getting a little bit of movement. And that is not the toxin coming back in. You, you, it, it's, you're gonna, it's going to come back. And sometimes patients get that confused and they go, but I've got movement. And it's like, you're not back at your baseline. This is how it works. So it's all about the education of the patient to talk about the cycle and yeah. to say it's going to be solid and then there's going to get some movement back. And the photographs important. Yeah. That's the critical classic when the photographs work because they say, look, yes. it's worn off early and you're going, it's just starting to recover. Here's your photographs now. Here's your photographs before we treated you. And you just show them and they go, okay, and saying, so spend yeah. your money on some shoes. It'd be much yeah. happier. Um, <laughs> the other thing as well is that as human beings, we're we're aging, we're changing all the time. So a dose that might have been great for you 10 years ago, especially for you guys that have had probably these patients have been with you for potentially decades things will change over time. Maybe the same dose is going to wear off more quickly now because, you know, we're getting older you, your muscles get stronger or you, you know, you, whatever is that, I mean, is that, that's, that's a factor as well, right? Actually, I think the reverse is true. I don't know about you, Steph, mm, patients you've been injecting for a long time, they only need it yes. maybe less than twice a year. Right. They, but they, they leave that the, the muscles must be atrophying and the ones that have been having yeah. it regularly yeah. and you can spread it out longer and longer and longer and even reduce the dose. There's well, quite a few patients that just get six units in the glabella who've been with me for a long time. I, I was, I, I want, I, I'm tempted to start another line of questioning, which is about bone reabsorption with, with, but we won't go there today, but I, no, no, <laughs> no, no, not today. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you just your own sort of experience because we can't speak for everyone, but the lockdown was really interesting or, or at least the one we had in Sydney mm. and you guys down in Melbourne had multiple lockdowns. So maybe you saw it even more amplified, but there were injectors around the world and it wasn't brand specific. So all brands, they were Ooh. complaining that their patients weren't responding to toxin after we got out of our various lockdowns. Neve, did you, did you see any of that yourself or did you hear no. about that from other injectors? No, I do wonder though, whether it was something to do with the vaccinations that everybody was having and even exposure to COVID and having COVID, because that would make more sense immunologically. If your immune system is fired up, you might be more sensitive to other stuff coming in. But certainly I haven't um, I haven't seen it just because they're in lockdown. No. Okay. How about you, Steph? That's interesting, because, you know, I actually do think that during uh, COVID lockdown, and we copped it worse than all of you guys in Melbourne, just letting you know, we're the most yeah. lockdown city in the world. I actually think that what people did do is look at their Zoom face, and we know that this is a phenomenon where all of a sudden, you know, usually you get up, you do your hair, you do your makeup as a female. You guys don't have to worry about that, I think. And then you go off to work. You don't look at your face. But now all of a sudden during lockdown, 
we're forced to look at ourselves in this Zoom kind of environment. Maybe potentially that had a little bit more impact that people were analysing themselves a bit more. But no, the impact was the same. In fact, when the lockdowns lifted, I used to go full throttle and then another lockdown. And then, (laughs) but most of the time they used to come back to baseline, complete baseline, and they were just totally, you know, disappointed with their face. So they were out of system. But no. Not I didn't experience it at all, but I had many injectors contact me, not just from you know Australia, but around the world saying, you know, it's not working, what's going on? They're blaming the batch numbers, but it wasn't brand specific. And no. I, I really felt like it sort of exposed the lack of consultation and particularly reconsultation after a long time of not doing your treatments. You almost yeah. wanted to reset things and start again and get your proper photos again and do a proper consult and, you know, do a dose adjustment because some of these people hadn't had a dose in six, eight, 12 months, maybe even. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the problem. Maybe they've actually, for the first time, gone back to their true baseline. Yeah. Because yeah. people have been having it for a long time and, like, you know, it lasts six months. Most who've been having it for a long time last at least six months yeah. for a standard dose. And um, maybe then after the length of time of not, being able to get back into their injector when they normally would, which yeah. is probably before it's actually completely worn off. And now they're just seeing their true baseline for the first time. Yeah. There's probably yeah. some people trying to get free treatments too. Oh, yeah. Yes, maybe. <laughs> you know, I think it's multifactorial. I think some patients were, you know, I experienced it. They were gagging for their, for their Botox and their fillers. And they came in with very high expectations to get back to that baseline. Mm-hmm. And so there was even a bit of, you know, change of perception of what, mm. what it even meant to them. Yeah. So it's, it's very nuanced, I think, but I, I don't believe that there was a problem with toxin no. uh, resistance. Yeah. So the second scenario, maybe we'll start with Steph this time. So you meet a patient for the first time. They've never had toxin before. You do your you know, heavy dose. I'm a heavy dose as well. So I believe in sort of doing things properly. And um, they come back two weeks later and you see them and you agree, shit, nothing has happened. It hasn't worked, even though they're well above, you know, therapeutic doses and you did it perfectly according to what you remember. So what do you do then? Yeah, so I'd go back to, because I won't remember them from two weeks ago, so I'll, I'll get their history out, reread through everything. I, I've i got Woodrow's system in my practice, so yeah. I basically get their photos out, relook at them and retake the photos at restroom animation I've I've recently had one of those in the last one year where I looked and I go, "Mm," but it was also the way that I actually injected her because I tend to sprinkle my Botox around the orbicularis oculi. uh, And so I actually want some movement left behind. And I did it. I agreed with her and I said, right, let me just have a look at this. I, I think you have had an improvement, but you know, you're 65 and it's not only the fact that you've got really pronounced crow's feet, but there's volume deficit as well. Yeah. Let me give it one more time, another hit, and let me give it a good smack and get you back in in two weeks' time and let me see what actually happens. I guess what I was getting at is you're confident yeah. that it's not a dose issue. So so they they ah. are essentially a primary non-responder. What, what do okay. you I haven't do? seen somebody like that. Then if I, you know, if I've given them, I mean, I, I remember once giving a female 50 units of Botox per orbicularis oculi, one person in 25 years. Uh, And that's the dose that it's a bell-shaped curve. Most people need this dose. Some people, like Neve said, I've stuck six units into a glabella going, get out of my practice, I'm making no money. And then you've got the others where (laughs) they're in the minority 
where I wish I could use Waffles Woo's uh, doses for the parodids and the and the maxillas. I'd pay all the kids school fees in around about two months. <laughs> so, I mean, the reality is that if I've gone really heavy-handed yeah. at, at the original, I've not seen that, to be honest with you, especially if I've given them a good hit. Okay. But if I got a primary non-responder, I'd give it a, another hit and then see what happens and uh, and and take it from there. Okay, so I, I guess same thing to Neve. But do you, are you aware of any tests? Because we, we we sort of alluded to some tests and you yeah. know specialized um, things that we might do to prove someone is truly a non-responder. But you know what's available here in Australia? Let's keep it relevant. Uh, clinical tests. So we haven't got any laboratory tests that uh, that we can do apart from in a research environment okay. so the clinical test you can it's basically sticking it in and see what they respond so you could do frontalis that's probably the most sensitive to see and you hit, hit it hard and one side compared to the other see what happens you can do one one um corrugated compared to the other you can do sternocleidomastoids you can do extensive digitorum brevis there are various clinical tests that can be done um, to see what the response is compared to just sticking saline in. That's probably the best thing. And if it looks at it, the same kind of response, then you'd be highly suspicious. Haven't had to do it. Never. So this is all sort of research type stuff. But, but, clinically in our clinics, you just have to hold your hands up and go, well, we've, exactly. we've done as much as we can. Thank you very much. Go and have a holiday and maybe come back in a year. Yeah, or two years, at least two years. Okay, so, so um, the, the so-called washout period, or some people call it. But the that's for a secondary non-response. If it's a primary, mm-hmm. I it's the first time they've been exposed to the botulinum toxin A injection, then it's not going to change because they've been vaccinated back from back when. That's so a the, primary. Okay, and there'll be listeners who may be a bit more inexperienced saying, "Well, I'll just swap them to another brand and and have another crack." What do you what do you think about that, Steph? I don't think it's going to work. I've actually done that. I did that in two patients. Theoretically, and when I read through the the data, is that the response of the body is to the core 150 kilodalton uh, core molecule. So if I don't respond to Botox, I theoretically should not respond to this core, nor should I respond to Xeomin. That is my understanding of it. I did that to two patients earlier on. So there were three patients that I can remember that I was going, what is going on? I converted them. Xeomin wasn't out there because it's the new kid on the block. So I stuck them onto Discord and I had to do this conversion, which did my head in because my maths is bad. And I I did that and I got, and the so-called dose equivalent, whatever that is, um, I got the same response. And then funnily enough, I did the Discord a few times and then put them back to Botox and it worked. So I don't know. I actually can't explain it. That I did twice. So, Neve, what, what's yeah. your experience? I disagree with you. Love you dearly, okay. but disagree with you on that. You can disagree on it. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, it's, it's it, the immunology. If it is an immune resistance, right, not a stuff up, basically you need to fire up your dendritic cell. So Botox and Dysport are going to fire up the dendritic cell. And then that is good. And you have to do that every time you inject. You have to have a firing up to get a response to because it's memory B cells. It has to go all the way up the chain and go to those B cells and say, hey, remember that blueprint you have for those antibodies? You need to produce them. And that chain is only be activated if you've got those non-core toxin proteins in there. 
If you have the core toxin proteins, you're highly unlikely to get the response. Now, you may still have antibodies in your system, right? So if you've got antibodies in the system and you give ZMN, sure, it's not going to work. Now, there's a nice study by a guy called Hefter, right? So Hefter's a neurologist in Germany, does lots and lots of cervical dystonias. He's got lots and lots of patients that's not working very well for, partial responders. He had, oh, let me remember this right. He had, I think it was 37 patients who were partial responders, right? So it was beginning to not work very well. And he said, let's put them on to Z-Min, all right? Now, about 10 of them, yes, that it's kept getting worse initially, but he was also watching the antibodies. And there was 10 of them, the antibodies stayed up. Their response wasn't very good. But then all of them, and we're talking about 200 units each patient at three monthly, their antibodies dropped off and some of them went completely to zero. There was, um, after after one year, he put them up to 500 units. And their antibodies were coming down. He also had a group, this, uh, 24 patients who were non-responders, oh, sorry, partial non-responders again. We gave them the toxin holiday for comparison and their antibodies came down in parallel. So we think that is because they're not getting that stimulus initially. So there is, so if you've got a partial non-responder, I think there is a case for putting them over to Zeman. You know, but Neve, can I just say, you're making an assumption here that they're a secondary non-responder, secondary to neutralizing antibodies, and we've got no way of proving that. And you've just told me you've done no clinical tests in Australia in your practice. So how do we work this out? Because I they clinically still- respond. So that's the thing. They did get a clinical response. So, yes, the antibodies came down, but we, he had a clinical response as well. So that, that, but that's the only paper. That's the only paper and on therapeutic indications. I think the but jury's said, the body out doesn't, with cosmetic, sorry. The body doesn't know whether, it, it, when you're talking about dosage and everything else, it's, it's the, the indication isn't so important. It's dose. So dose, the dose and the interval the is, which in cosmetic, in, you know, and in cosmetic, it's really low. I, I, it would be fair to say, Neve, that the data on aesthetics is out. And our doses in aesthetic medicine, apart from when I usually go gun-ho, my doses are usually typically 30 to 50 units. I like to go to 70. I love going over 100. It's really good. But uh, the reality is that, you know, it's, the data is out in terms of uh, neutralizing antibodies and non-responders, and we need to collect more of this yeah. within, maybe even in Australia, so that we can actually get more information. So maybe we should be working on something like that. And maybe I'm an idealist, uh, like with the breast implant sort of the data scenario, but we don't have the answers. No, uh, but I do think that when you're looking at data, when it's dosing and everything else from therapeutics, all right. Remember, the body doesn't know the difference. I yep. think for me, I think the threshold of starting to see problems will probably be around the 50 unit mark, maybe okay. certainly up to 100 units. So you may, so in that group of patients that you're banging masseters with their lower face, when you're doing hyperhidrosis, when I'm doing migraines and I'm treating here, 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 and the back of the neck, you know, yeah. we're, we're talking pretty bigger doses there. And there is, a, yeah. Okay. Have you seen any resistance? Have I seen, I've seen, as I said, I've seen partial patients, but I, for those patients, especially bigger doses, I only use Zeman because okay. I do well, think. I, 
I only use Botox predominantly yeah. and I haven't seen it. And I'm I'm using pretty good doses as well. But what worries me is if I am getting it, they're probably going down the road. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to wade in as the referee. I'm going to take you back to your corners and call this a draw. We love each other. I'm going to need some, uh, one of you to treat me for a migraine. <laughs> <laughs> no, j- joking aside, I think that was a, a, a great yeah. chat. And, and to be honest, uh, the people listening, I think it shows how little data or how conflicting the data really is. I mean, yeah. that, that, that is the truth of it. Um, but, you know, I guess summary points are do a really good consultation, particularly your primary consultation, photos. I do the videos as well. It's, it's very quick to do a 10-second grab of, you know, neutral, frown, eyebrows up, smile, and maybe do some lower face expressions if that's what you want to do. It doesn't take mm-hmm. long. And then you can show whether your patient is recruiting or doing something weird when they come back and say, I've still got lines. Um, really talking about skin quality, static lines, uh, dynamic lines, all the rest of it. And then making sure your dose is at least close to, if not to the therapeutic dose. So you're sure that, you know, the, the what you're trying to do is actually going to, you know, come into effect in two weeks time. So, and also that, if you do have a non-responder, assume that assume that it was human error, yes. i.e., your error before it is an issue with the product. Because it's incredibly rare. I, th- I think we, you know, doesn't matter which brand you favour. I think we agree it's very rare. Um, and certainly in all of our experience and every injector who I've ever met, they've either met no one who's a primary um, non-responder, or maybe one in the crowd out of ten thousand people. You know, it's it's not common. Mm. So. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you both for joining us. Thank you, um, yes. Any any final comments? And let's keep it short. <laughs> we'll start with Steph. <laughs> now, this was fun. I enjoyed um, being here. So thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, may uh, all the toxins live forever. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Stephanie. And, and Neve, any parting comments? I, I just think, I mean, all of them are very, the ones we have in Australia are really good drugs. You know, yeah. you wouldn't say effect, from the effectiveness and everything, One's not better than the other. I do believe there is an indication and a a resistance thing. What the incidence in aesthetics is, we don't know. But I just, for me, um, I just think with my doctor's hat on for that one patient in my practice or two patients out of this year who may get resistance, then I need it for therapeutics. I think that's something in the consideration. So you either follow the strategies that Steph does, or if you're going to be treating them more frequently or really high doses, then I would consider one with lower immunogenistic. That's my summary. Fantastic. David? Thank you. I'm just going to give a shout out to Woodrow. He mentioned his uh, photography system for those that are listening either in Australia or abroad. Yeah. The Clinical Imaging Australia, is that what it's called? Clinical Imaging? Clinical Imaging. Yeah. Woodrow Wilson, not named after the American president, but maybe he was. I don't know. But he's South African, so it's kind of weird. I don't know. (laughs) No idea. But anyway, ladies, thank you so much for joining us and uh, we shall speak soon. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 